I think we dramatically underestimate how powerful appreciation is. Sometimes the time you spend with people is meaningful to them in ways that you never foresee and would never know if they didn't follow up. How meaningful was it when somebody told you in a genuine way what they appreciate about you? And, you know, isn't that an experience you want to create for someone else? I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is Adam Grant, a talented teacher, researcher, and writer who has been examining how people find meaning at work for the past 15 years. And it turns out that the secret is simple. If you want to feel like the work you do is meaningful, it's all about taking time to show people that they matter to you. Whether that's a sincere expression of appreciation or taking a break from your busy schedule to offer someone advice. In this conversation, Adam and I go deep on generosity. We explore how small expressions of thanks can have an outsized impact and why asking for help can actually make you look more competent. We also talk about the dark side of helping, something Adam calls generosity burnout, and investigate why being generous doesn't necessarily mean always making yourself available. But before we dive in, a few quick notes on some changes to the show this season. Last season, I released a show a week to create a 30-episode season. And while the pace was invigorating, it was, quite frankly, not sustainable. This is the catch when you're making stuff for the first time, right? You don't know how long anything will take because you've never done it before. But now that I know what to expect, I'm dialing into a pace that feels right for me and right for the ethos of the show. So this season, I'll be releasing an episode every other week. And since my short meditations last season seemed to really resonate with folks, I'll be sprinkling in a few more of those. Okay, now that we're on the same page about what to expect this season, let's dig into my conversation with Adam. I want to talk about generosity today through a few different lenses. And the first is one of the more unsung aspects of generosity, which is being generous with your appreciation, whether that's telling a coworker that you appreciate her work or writing someone a thoughtful thank you letter. Could you talk about what you've learned about the power of appreciation in your research? You know, I, I actually don't think the research I've done on this is that interesting because it basically supports something we all already know, which is that we need to be appreciated and that when we feel appreciated, we work harder and we also work more productively. And the quality of our work stays just as high, if not also goes up. And so, you know, I look at that and I say, okay, this is really obvious. People want to be appreciated. When you appreciate them, they become more motivated. And, you know, the story kind of ends there, except there's a little twist that is interesting, which is, I think we dramatically underestimate how powerful appreciation is. So, you know, just getting a simple thank you after you give somebody feedback on a job application cover letter, would you, would you have guessed that just the words thank you would be enough to not only lead to about a 50% increase that they're willing to help you again, but also then make them more likely to help somebody else who reaches out. 
I think that, you know, oftentimes that, that little expression of thanks is enough to signal to people that their help was valued, that the time they spent mattered. And that convinces them that it's worth investing that time again in the future. And so, you know, when people do something that's, you know, that is an act of generosity or kindness and it doesn't go appreciated, it feels a little bit like a slap in the face. Like, hey, I was doing this to be helpful. Your, your lack of gratitude signals that I clearly was not helpful, so why should I bother? Yeah, and I think a lot of us, particularly with email, and I know that some of your research was specifically around sending thank you notes via email, I think some of us assume sometimes that, you know, people are so overloaded that a little thank you note is like not worth it. You know, it's just going to like add more of a burden to your inbox. But to your point, you know, people are actually twice as likely to sort of help you again in the future or help anyone if you just make that really small gesture, which I think is pretty remarkable to sort of return on that. I thought so too. When, when Francesca Gino and I did that research, we were expecting that, you know, that a, just a small expression of thanks would, you know, it would, it would help, right? That it would, it would tell you, hey, you know what? That time you spent really was valued. It was worth it. Uh, but we were unprepared for how much of an impact it had. I can't remember where it was, but I was looking at some survey that was done and it was looking at people's likelihood to express their appreciation in the workplace. And, you know, there was some data like people were more likely to thank their mailman than they were to thank their coworker. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, have you seen anything like that and kind of, you know, your research in terms of like people's sort of likelihood of, you know, really extending that appreciation? Well, I, I can't say I've seen that particular comparison, but there's, uh, th there's a survey that was done by Glenn Tobin Associates years ago where they took a list of 10 motivators at work and they asked people to rate them in importance and then, you know, ended up coming up with sort of a rank order of most to least important motivators. And then they asked managers to do the same thing and, and try to predict what their employees would say. And, you know, at the very top of managers lists, uh, on average, the manager said, okay, you know, we think that employees are going to be motivated by pay, by promotion opportunities, and by job security. And at the very bottom of their list was appreciation. And the employees' actual reported preferences were the exact opposite. Uh, they said, appreciation is the single most important thing that I'm looking for. And, you know, I think Chip Heath published some research on this years ago on what he called the extrinsic incentives bias, which you know essentially captures the fact that managers tend to overestimate the impact of extrinsic rewards and underestimate the impact of intrinsic rewards. And I think one of the reasons that happens is, you know, when, when you when you offer someone a salary increase or you know even just create a, a pay incentive that they can earn through doing high quality or you know high quantity work, you see the impact. Whereas it's really hard to know if, you know, the, the three extra sentences that you offered of gratitude a few weeks ago had any effect whatsoever. Uh, and I think the fact that changes to extrinsic incentives are so rare uh, and they're so objective and measurable makes it easy to, to know when they did have an impact. Whereas, you know, the, the effects of gratitude or appreciation are much more intangible and they're hard to measure. And it's something that we need to, to reinforce on a regular basis. And so we don't, we don't really notice the fluctuations in how sincerely we do that or how frequently we, do, frequently we do that. And so I think a lot of managers really underinvest in appreciation. And is there anyone you've talked to or, or anything you've you know, kind of done for yourself, for your own practice to try to 
increase that awareness? So in, gosh, this is 15 years ago, but in 2003, I started grad school in organizational psychology. And I was reading this, this wonderful research that some of my colleagues did on what they called uh, the reflected best self exercise, which was, you know, a, it was basically a way of discovering your strengths. You know, strengths had become popular. You know, it, there was a lot of awareness that we didn't do a very good job helping people think about what they were good at. <laughs> we give lots of negative feedback, but, you know, what about the, the things that you excel at or the areas of excellence you might not even recognize yet? And how do we draw those to your attention? And most of the, the strengths work that had been done was, was really around having people rate their own strengths. But the, the insight here, which, which came from Jane Dutton and Gretchen Spreitzer and a few of our collaborators, was that you, know, you could actually get better feedback on your strengths through the people who know you well. And so the, the Reflective Best Self exercise was a chance to reach out to 15 to 20 people who you might work with. Uh, they also allowed friends and family. And to, what you were supposed to do was ask them all to tell you a story about a time when you were at your best. And then as you collected those stories, it would be like the best email week of your life, right? Because you're getting these stories telling you about how amazing you are. But then you have some work to do. You have to look at the patterns across them, identify the themes, and compose a portrait of who you are at your best reflected through the eyes of people who know you well. And yeah, they'd, they'd done a bunch of research on the power of doing this. You know, it, it helps you notice strengths that you, you weren't aware of. It also helps you recognize opportunities for using your strengths you might have missed. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty empowering exercise. And I looked at that and I said, oh, I wonder if it would be even more powerful to do the reverse. That instead of asking people, hey, Jocelyn, could you, could you tell me a story about how great I am? What if instead I reached out and I said, Jocelyn, I wanted to tell you a story about how great you are. And so I was thinking about this basically the entire fall semester of my, my first year in this doctoral program at Michigan. And December rolled around and I had a couple of weeks where I finished all my work and it was the holiday season and I really didn't have anything to do. So I decided I was going to spend a week. I was going to identify the hundred people who mattered most to me. And I was going to write them each a gratitude email appreciating something about them at their best. And I spent the whole week writing these emails. And afterward, I, I have to say the, the afterglow of just the, the joy and the meaning that came from, from writing these notes, uh, it stuck with me for months. And I'm not really sure why I've never done it again other than I've gotten busier over time. But what was interesting about it was a lot of people wrote back and you know, shared a story about me at my best, which I didn't ask for. It felt you know, much more sincere than just asking them to do it. And through the exercise, I realized that you know, regardless of whether this was a strength of mine or not, uh, the, the person I wanted to be at my best was the person who showed that kind of appreciation. And so I haven't figured out how to incorporate that practice into my daily life other than uh, this is a long way of, of getting to the punchline, which is not funny at all. But uh, the, the place that landed me is there are a lot of things that I do that involve appreciating other people that they never find out about. And the biggest example of that is writing a recommendation letter. I write dozens and dozens of recommendation letters every year for former students, for colleagues, and usually they never get to see what I wrote. And so one of the things I will often do when someone graduates or has a big job milestone is I'll send them the letter so that they can know what I appreciate about them. And I've found that to be a really gratifying experience, and I hope they have too. 
you touched on something that I was thinking about as well is, is whether that kind of flip side has really been studied of like how good it makes you feel to express your appreciation to someone. Because I know, as you were sort of describing that, I always feel so much lighter um, and almost have this kind of high, as you said, when I really take time out to do that and sort of remember like, oh, this appreciation was sort of here inside of me and it feels intuitively obvious to me. But, you know, let me just confirm that you kind of know how grateful I am. Michael McCullough and Bob Emmons published some research on this about a decade and a half ago where they randomly assigned people to, to express gratitude. And initially they were doing it just in, in letters. But then Marty Seligman and his colleagues came in and said, what if, what if we actually had people do gratitude visits where you go and meet the person and tell them what you appreciate about them? And they found that it's, it's one of the more reliable ways to get a, a potentially lasting increase in your happiness to go and, and do these gratitude visits regularly. I have to say, I found it a little bit awkward. And I, I much prefer to do it in writing. I, I find myself a lot more thoughtful when I do it that way. I also feel like the element of surprise is easier to control. And, you know, I, I can pick the time when I want to deliver the email or send the letter. And I think that it just it's just easier to set the stage in a way that, that really makes a mark. But I, I do think there's, there's good news on that as a source of happiness. I think also it's, it's probably worth knowing that sometimes we, we hold back on that because we don't want to make the receiver feel awkward. Right. Like there's this there's this hesitation of, oh, if, if I tell you how much I appreciate you, you're going to you're going to feel uncomfortable, like I'm giving you too much praise. And that doesn't turn out to be something that receivers feel a whole lot of. People love to feel appreciated. And so I think when when you have that hesitation, it's worth putting yourself in the receiver's shoes and saying, all right, even if you did feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, how meaningful was it when somebody told you in a genuine way what they appreciate about you? And, you know, isn't that an experience you want to create for someone else? Well, so let's say someone is listening and thinking to themselves, yeah, you know, I should express my appreciation more often. I'm going to make that a regular practice. I know you've looked at strategies for expressing generosity, and it seems like some strategies are more effective than others. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of things that I've, I've learned from the data. And then one thing that I have no evidence for, but I, I, I'm pretty confident that my instincts and experience uh, are, are going to be right. And of course, now they're going to be wrong because I just expressed confidence. But uh, from, a, from a data perspective, Sonia Lubomirsky and her colleagues have done these cool experiments where they say, look, you know, if you're going to do five random acts of kindness a week or you know, express gratitude to five people a week, should you sprinkle those across the week and do one Monday, one Tuesday, one Wednesday, one Thursday, one Friday, or should you chunk them into one batch and say, all right, Thursday is going to be my generosity day or my gratitude day? And you know, the question is then, what's the impact on your mood and happiness? And when I ask live audiences this, I've, I've done this uh, at least a couple dozen times with audiences of, of thousands. And about 80% of people on average will raise their hand and say, sprinkling is the way to go. You want to do a little bit every day, and that will brighten your week. And Sonia's data showed the exact opposite that if you do one extra random act of kindness a day every week or one little gratitude exercise a day every week for 10 weeks, it has no discernible impact whatsoever on your mood, your happiness, or your energy. So, you know, those, those moments that you spend helping other people, 
They might benefit others, but they're totally useless to you. Whereas people who are randomly assigned to chunk them and just pick that one day to do all five each week, they got a reliable and, and somewhat sustainable increase in their happiness and mood over the course of 10 weeks when they did that. And this has now been replicated in the workplace uh, by Ryan Duffany and his colleagues. And I think what, what seems to be happening anyway is that when you do the sprinkling, you know, it's like a drop in the bucket. And it's also sort of distracting from your, your other priorities. Whereas when you pick a day to focus, you can put all your attention on that and you feel like you made a difference that day, right? They, they add up to more than the sum of the parts when, when you do all those random acts that might otherwise feel pretty trivial. And so I think it is worth having, you know, a generosity day or a gratitude day each week as opposed to just doing a little bit every day. And then the thing that I've, I've become increasingly convinced of is I think we, we go about expressing gratitude the wrong, maybe not the wrong way, but at the wrong time. So let's say you have a mentor who gives you some really valuable advice. When, Jocelyn, let me ask you this, actually. The last time you got great advice from a mentor, when did you reach out to thank them? Hmm. I'm having trouble coming up with a specific instance right now, but I think my my instinct would be sort of two parts. It would be to say thank you immediately, you know, for whatever, taking the time to answer this email or taking the time to meet with me. Yep. But, and I do forget this part sometimes, to actually thank them once I've sort of put that advice into use and can kind of explain, you know, how it was actually helpful to me. Uh, excellent. So that second part, I think, is so often missing. I think that we have, we live in a, a culture where, uh, actually, I, I always think of this, uh, this Ed Helms line uh, when he was playing Andy Bernard on The Office, where he was like, you, you do me a favor, bam, thank you note. Do not test my politeness. <laughs> and I, I think that so many people live in that culture, right? Where you feel like, okay, somebody, you know, does something kind or generous for you. And the polite and appropriate thing to do is to thank them immediately. And of course you want to do that. But I will say when I'm on the other end of that, you know, when, when I'm in a mentoring role, for example, the most meaningful notes I've gotten are months or even years down the road. Because exactly as you were saying, I get to hear the story of, of what impact I had. And sometimes I don't even remember giving the advice. And then I can say, okay, that was not a terrible suggestion. Maybe I'll give it again if somebody else is in that situation. And it just, you know, it's, it's a reminder that, uh, that sometimes the, you know, the, the time you spend with people is, you know, is meaningful to them in ways that you never foresee and would never know if they didn't follow up. And I think that I would love to see uh, uh, sort of a, a movement toward delayed gratitude. It's time to pause for a quick break, but stay tuned because after the jump, Adam and I talk about why asking for advice can actually make you look more competent and the dark side of helping people out. A little something called generosity burnout. This episode is brought to you by Hover. What's that Shakespeare quote, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet? Well, clearly the bard wasn't thinking about domain names when he penned those lines. These days, your URL is basically your home base for the internet. And it just doesn't feel right if it's anything less than perfect. You've got to find the domain name that's a perfect expression of you and your brand. And I would know because I'm literally wrestling at this very moment with what URL to use for a new project I'm launching. 
And when I need inspiration, I head right on over to Hover.com. Hover has roughly a gazillion extensions on tap, including .me, .design, and my new favorite for the not-so-serious entrepreneur, .lol. They also offer best-in-class customer support, a simple, beautiful user interface, and none of those gross upsells that dog you on other domain sites. Plus, Hover Connect makes it super easy to connect your new domain to a bunch of popular website builders with just a few clicks. Every great idea deserves a great domain name. So head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly now to get 10% off any new domain. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by Twist. As many of you know, I am no fan of real-time chat messaging, mostly because I think it's impossible to do great work if you're constantly being pinged by requests that need a response ASAP. That said, remote collaboration is a fact of life for most of us. So what's the alternative? Enter Twist, a mindful team communication app designed by the same folks that make the popular productivity app Todoist. What's great about Twist is that it promotes calm, clear, asynchronous communication. Where apps like Slack leave you feeling lost and left out if you're not constantly monitoring the conversation, Twist is designed to allow you to respond to your teammates calmly and at your own pace. By focusing on a thread-based approach to communication, Twist encourages measured, thoughtful discussion and allows you to disconnect to do deep work without that anxious feeling of FOMO. If you're ready for a team communication app that focuses on progress instead of just adding more stress, it's time to try Twist. Visit twistapp.com slash hurry slowly to automatically receive $100 in Twist unlimited credits when you sign up for a new account. That's twistapp.com slash hurry slowly for $100 in credit. Let's talk about the power of building a culture of generosity, specifically in the workplace. What are the benefits of fostering an environment where people feel comfortable giving help and feel comfortable asking for help? Well, I think the asking part is especially important because when when I started studying the dynamics of generosity at work, I thought what we wanted was, was a world where people were constantly offering, right? Let me, you know, if I can give you any feedback, please let me know. Would be, you know, thrilled to, to teach a skill. Uh, you know, I really enjoy making introductions. Let me know if I can ever connect you with anyone. And it turns out that offers are not a very big driver of, of generosity cultures, but requests are. That if you look at the data, somewhere between 75 and 90% of all helping in organizations starts with a request. And yet, in a lot of workplaces, people don't ask because they don't want to be vulnerable. They want to be self-reliant. They don't want to burden others. And because of that, you end up with fewer requests than people would genuinely like to get help for. And then you get a lot of frustrated givers in your organization who would love to contribute if only they knew who could benefit and how. And so, you know, I think in in terms of creating a culture of help-seeking, you see a a few benefits. The first one is that people get problem-solved. The second is that people who seek help on a regular basis, so a few times a day as opposed to just a few times a month, actually are more productive and they also have higher performance evaluations from their supervisors on average 
because they're able to get the information they need to do a good job. And, you know, at the, at the aggregate level, when an organization has a culture where it's safe to ask, it's a lot easier than to retain talented people who feel like they're supported. It's easier to attract new people who might have lots of options. And you end up with much higher morale in your, your workplace. And, you know, I think on the flip side of that, if you can create a culture where people are motivated to help others, you see a lot of the same benefits, right? So at the group level, people are much more productive if there's a norm of helping on average, provided that they actually need each other's help to be effective in their jobs. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can see this in a lot of different contexts from pharmaceutical sales teams, uh, bringing in more revenue when they have norms of helping and generosity. Uh, you see it in the productivity of paper mill crews. Uh, it's been shown with intelligence teams as well. So if you look at the U.S.'s major intelligence agencies uh, and you track the frequency of peer coaching, where, you know, if I, if I were trying to figure out whether, you know, some data presented a threat, and I was just able to lean over and say, hey, Jocelyn, can you take a look at this and see, you know, let me know what you think of it. Um, how frequently I'm comfortable doing that and how often I do it is the single best predictor of anything we can measure of the effectiveness of our intelligence unit, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And so, you know, I think there's, there's a pretty strong case to be made that organizations need helping and given behaviors in order to be productive. Um, and I've also found in some of my own research that you need that for creativity too, that the time you spend being able to seek help uh, enables you to get access to new ideas and perspectives you never would have considered. And the time you spend giving help can also make you more creative too. So all that effort you invest in, you know, teaching other people how to solve their problems, sometimes it gives you new ideas for how to tackle your own problems. So I think there, there are a whole bunch of benefits, but these cultures are pretty rare and pretty fragile. What do you think people need to know literally about kind of how to ask for help, like maybe, you know, kind of baby steps of how to start building that culture in their place of work? Well, the, the first thing that drives me crazy is when people apologize for ask, asking for help. Uh, you know, I, I, I get emails on a pretty regular basis from people saying, I'm so sorry to bother you. Well, if you think it's a bother, you probably don't want to ask me for it, right? You want to you figure out how to make a request that I'm excited when it comes in. And I say, you know what, this is a really good use of my time. Or, you know what, at least it's going to benefit you more than it costs me. And so it feels like an efficient investment of, you know, of my resources. And I think that, you know, much more often instead of, of the apology, I'd like to see, okay, you know, here's why I think this is a meaningful request. And here's why I chose you. That, that is so often missing, right? Um, you know, the, the, the norm is, at least in my inbox, I don't know about yours, but in my inbox, the norm is, Hey, I'm wondering if, you know, if you could fill in the blank and there's never an explanation, not even a sentence of, and here's why I thought you were the right person to reach out to. And the moment you tell me that you convinced me that I'm in a position to provide some unique help as opposed to immediately wondering, okay, you know, how many other thousands of people could fulfill this request? And then, you know, are, are many of them less busy than I am? Or do you have a closer relationship with some of them? And you know, is this actually a request that I should be fulfilling or am I only reinforcing the wrong behavior here? And so the, there's some research dating back to the 1980s, which shows that one of the, the best ways to get people to stop social loafing and free riding uh, and, and make sure that they actually are willing to help and contribute is to show them that they have a unique role to play or they can make a contribution that someone else can't. And so I think that's an essential part of a help request is to say, hey, um, I'll tell you how this looks in my world. So the two ways that I love being helpful the most 
are sharing knowledge about work in psychology, which, you know, kind of feels like all this time I spend reading, you know, esoteric journal articles might actually be relevant to someone's life, which is a delight when that happens. And then making introductions between two people who could benefit from knowing each other, which, you know, I think is, is sometimes the best way for me to be helpful is to say, look, I get to interact with lots of different industries, uh, you know, between teaching and writing and speaking and, and all these different roles that I play. Uh, I have a pretty diverse network and, and very often I can find the person that you're looking for, provided that they're looking for you too. And so, you know, if you reach out with a request for me, the first thing you can do is you can say, look, I have this question about work in psychology and I went to you because you've written about a similar topic in the past or I watched your TED talk on this topic. Um, you know, so that is not only telling me why I have a unique contribution to make, it's also showing that you've done your homework. Uh, which is, you know, not a bad thing, especially if the answer is actually Googleable in 10 seconds or less. And then, you know, same thing on introductions, right? I'm looking to meet this kind of person. And I thought you were the right person because, you know, I, I saw that you have told a story about people in that industry, or I know you've worked with companies that are in that sector. And so I think if you can, if you can get specific about why me and, you know, show that it's really worth my time, I am much more likely to help. And that is true for the vast majority of people in the position to be asked. So I want to come back to something that you kind of touched on earlier, which is that many of us have the instinct that asking for help actually makes us look weak. But my understanding is that the research shows the opposite. Is it is it true that asking for help actually makes you look more competent? Well, it depends on how often you do it and what you're asking for, of course, right? If... <laughs> If you ask a bunch of your colleagues for help doing a spell check, probably not going to go so well. But there is uh, there is a bunch of work by uh, Ari Nadler and his colleagues showing that the people who ask for help more often, uh, as long as they don't do it constantly or for things that aren't important or complicated, uh, end up getting judged more favorably. And I think even more than that, uh, you know, help seeking can be a double-edged sword, right? It can be a burden to people. Uh, if you're imposing on them or if they're super busy, uh, it can make you look like you don't know what you're doing if you're not careful about it. Advice seeking tends to be a much safer bet on average. So Allison Wood Brooks and her colleagues have these these great studies, uh, which, uh, if I remember correctly, are called smart people ask for my advice. Because when someone comes to you with a request for a recommendation, you know, saying, hey, I've got this dilemma. I know you're really good at, at thinking through these kinds of problems or I really look up to the way you've navigated your career path, then it signals that that person is kind of a genius because they knew to come to me. And so I think that if you're ever on the fence about whether it's safe to ask for help, one of the ways you can test the waters is to ask for advice and see how the reaction is. And then if, if it seems to go over well, the next time you can turn it into a help request. I want to switch gears and talk about the dark side of being a giver for a moment, which is something that you uh, have called generosity burnout. What exactly is generosity burnout? Well, I think of generosity burnout as what happens when you really enjoy helping other people and you start to, to get a reputation for being the kind of person who's willing to, to say yes and you know share your knowledge, teach your skills, solve problems, and pretty soon, no good deed goes unpunished. And you end up just with a deluge of requests. And you become so busy doing other people's jobs that you just run out of time and energy to get any of your own work done. And that's a, that's a really easy way to get emotionally exhausted. 
And so, you know, I think that we see this with a lot of people, you know, if, if you were to plot the spectrum of, of givers to takers, uh, generosity burnout, not surprisingly, is a lot more common if you're on the giving end of the spectrum. And worse yet, if you're not only a regular giver in demand, but you're also viewed as effective, you're at an even higher risk for burning out. Uh, so Rob Cross collected a bunch of data uh, across about 20 companies where he asked people to rate their colleagues on how much more of their time they would ideally like, and then how effective are they at providing help. And the people who were most likely to burn out were the ones who are in high demand and really competent or capable at helping. And I think that, you know, that's generosity burnout in a nutshell. And obviously, it's critical to figure out what we can do to prevent it. So I'm just guessing here, but my assumption is that women might suffer disproportionately from generosity burnout. Do, do the numbers bear that out? Um, I think the answer is yes. So women, on average, do have higher job burnout rates than men, uh, about 8% higher, typically, if you look at the, the meta-analytic data, uh, which is a big study of studies. Uh, and there is also some evidence that women are significantly more likely to say yes to requests and they're also significantly more likely to be asked. And I think if you put those pieces together, we could start to, to assume that it's likely that one of the reasons women burn out more often than men is because they have more requests and burdens dumped on their shoulders. I was looking for an, a sort of yes to that question, but that is a little bit depressing, actually. <laughs> it is. It is. And I think that, you know, I'm, I, I think it's really hard to talk about this without falling into a trap of mansplaining here, but... <laughs> well, give it a shot. I, I, I will say, as an organizational psychologist, I can, no, I, can, I can speak to what I've read of the data, and you can tell me how it tracks with your experience. So uh, Linda Babcock and her colleagues just published some research showing that one of the reasons that women get asked more often and say yes at a higher rate is, be, is social expectations, right? We have these stereotypes of women as caring and communal, and so when it comes time to ask for help, we think, oh well, why don't I ask a woman? She wants to help. And then women are aware of these same expectations. And so they feel a lot of social pressure to say yes. And when they do, then they just reinforce those expectations, right? When they don't, they get punished. Madeline Heilman has shown that a woman who says no to a help request is penalized to a much greater extent than a man. Uh, you know, a woman is sort of violating gender stereotypes, whereas a man, it's like, oh, you know, he's supposed to be ambitious and results oriented. And then on the flip side, when women say yes, it's taken for granted because, you know, they're just doing what we expect women to do. You know, they're taking notes in meetings, the planning parties, all the office housework. And when a man helps, it's like, well, now I must shower him with praise and rewards. I never would have expected him to care about another human being. And I, I think that's a huge problem. So that that's my read of the, of the data over the last couple of decades. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, that completely feels true. I was thinking about it very much in those terms of sort of expecting women to sort of be giving and caring and, you know, den mother, all of that type of stuff. But that plays out, as you said, in the office setting very much as a being expected to take notes or being expected to mind the details or being expected to plan social events. Um, well, maybe a useful way to talk about what, you know, some ways out of this. I know that there's sort of a difference between being generous and being available, even though we often confuse the two things. 
So maybe we could talk about some strategies for being generous without always feeling like you need to make yourself available, so to speak. Sure. So I think there, there are individual level solutions. There are also you know, team and organizational solutions. So I actually want to start on the, the collective side because I think it's, it's too easy to blame the individual if, you know, if we start there. So you know, I actually think this starts at home, right? We've study after study, Claire Kane Miller just wrote about one recently in the New York Times, one of the latest, showing that girls do more household chores than boys do. And what do we expect, right? If, if we raise our kids to believe that you know, all of the grunt work, the, the valuable but invisible work, or the devalued work that somebody's got to do, but nobody really appreciates. If we teach kids growing up that that is the work of girls and women, it's, it's pretty, it would be pretty unusual if those norms didn't carry into the workplace. And so I think that, that's the first change that we need to make. And then, you know, in, in organizations, I actually think we need systems for helping people figure out where to go for help, right? I think the problem starts when... People get to make a choice about who do I think is the most accessible or who's the nicest person. And, you know, that on average is going to lead them to make more requests of women than they will of men, given all the stereotypes we talked about. Lots of organizations have expert databases where you can figure out, you know, if you're trying to learn something about artificial intelligence, who, who in this company would, would have a clue. And I think everyone should have a profile of where they can contribute and what they have to offer so that I don't just go to the most accessible people or the people I think I'm gonna, are going to say yes, but I can actually go to the person who's you know, most able to help me. And then we can track this, right? We can make sure that it's not disproportionately a request going to women or yes is coming from women. And we can rebalance this and say, look, you know, we, we have some, a particular set of requests uh, that you know, we really need some, some people to step up for. And then we can, we can try to create more balance and equity by gender, by race, uh, also by functional background. And I think that would be a good step. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, a friend of mine who teaches at a university in Boston was literally just talking about this same thing, how the women have observed that they disproportionately are on committees and then do a disproportionate amount of work on these committees. And so they're actually working right now on creating um, ways to effectively kind of map and monitor that participation so that they can kind of bring some more um, equity to those interactions, which is pretty interesting. Bring it on. (laughs) How does that play out on an individual level? So Sheryl Sandberg and I wrote an op-ed about this a few years ago. It was called Madam CEO, Get Me the Coffee. And we were... Yeah, we were interested in in how can organizations solve this, but also what do you do when, when you're in this situation? And I think probably the most important thing I've learned, you know, through the work that Cheryl and I have done together, through reading a lot of the research and uh, through, you know, trying to coach people through this, is I, I think there's, there's a, a misconception that being a kind or generous person means saying yes. And I think it's worth recognizing that every no is a chance to say yes when it matters more. And so, you know, one... One body of research that I found useful on this is, is Hannah Riley Bowles and her colleagues. Uh, they show that if you know if you say no on behalf of someone else, essentially, or if you say no because you've made a commitment to other people, uh, you you still signal that you're you're giving and caring, right? So I would love to do this, uh, but you know I, I unfortunately have already made these commitments to other people, and you know I don't have bandwidth for any more. Uh, now you're not violating the the belief that you should be helping. 
another approach that I think is is often helpful is the <laughs> the uh, it's a version of what Bob Cialdini would call the rejection and then retreat, where you know you instead of just saying no, I can't help you, uh, you say no, but you offer something else. So you're still signaling a willingness to be helpful. So in my case, uh, when when I first came out with uh, my first book, Give and Take. There was a, a big New York Times magazine cover story, and unfortunately, it showed a scene or covered a scene of me in office hours giving career advice to my students, which I'm really reluctant to do, even when I've gotten to know them over a semester. I don't think it's my place to tell somebody how to, you know, make a career choice. I definitely don't have a clue what any random stranger should do with the, with their job, and I got first hundreds and eventually thousands of emails from people saying, "Can you give me some career advice?" And you know, I just felt, I felt awful saying no. And so I ended up writing a, a sort of a standard response when these requests came in. I said, you know, I, I, I'm not comfortable giving prescriptive advice to strangers. I hope you understand. Here are the most valuable career or uh, career resources that I've collected over the years. And, you know, I had a few books, a few articles. And, you know, I, th- I felt like, okay, I'm not being a jerk. I'm still trying to do something. I may not be giving you exactly what you asked for, but it's actually, to me, the most helpful thing that I can give you. And I think that, that very often, just the, you know, the, the I'm sorry I can't give you that, but let me offer you this instead. Uh, you know, it, it allows you to save face and also sometimes might be just as helpful to the other person, if not more so. I know that finding meaning at work is one of the explicit focuses of your research. How does generosity specifically relate to finding meaning? So... If you look at all the factors that make our work meaningful, the most robust driver of believing that your work is important and meaningful is believing that your work helps other people. That's been shown over and over again since the 1970s. And so, you know, I often think about when people lack meaning in their job, the the question that I encourage them to ask is, okay, if, if your job didn't exist, who would be worse off? And, you know, you can think about groups of people, you know, it could be your clients or your customers or your colleagues or your boss um, and, you know, specific names. And then those are the people who add meaning to your work, right? Those are the people who explain why your job exists. And I think that that, you know, that becomes a huge source of meaning. Now, in many jobs, uh, they're not designed well to provide a lasting impact on people, and so, you know, you, you may have to take matters into your own hands. That may mean crafting your job to figure out, okay, how can I add more value, right? How can I make more of a difference? And, you know, insofar as you're able to do that, you might find that those, those acts of generosity that you seek out, you know, the, the people that you, you say, you know what, I, um, I know this is totally unrelated to my job, but I'm really passionate about public speaking. And so I'm going to offer a public speaking class. Uh, whatever you know, knowledge you have, skills you can share, connections you can make, those acts of generosity can become part of what makes your job meaningful. And then, you know, when that's lacking, there's some very cool research by Jessica Rodell, which shows that volunteering can be a substitute. So when organizations uh, give people time to, to volunteer as part of their job, uh, if, if they lack meaning in their job, volunteering actually compensates. And it gives them a sense still that the, their involvement in this organization is a source of meaning because, you know, as part of that, they're still able to be helpful to other people. And so, you know, I think it, it doesn't have to come from your job. It doesn't have to be designed into your job. But if you have a job where you feel like you are not making a significant difference in the lives of others, 
then I think it it does turn out to be the case that adding a little bit more generosity into your day, even just some small five-minute favors, can add meaning to your work and to your life. A few years ago, I wrote a blog post called Confessions of a Burnt-Out Overachiever, in which I describe what I now think of as my busyness breakdown. I talk about how I broke myself down through the slow drip of saying yes to too many things, and how I began to recover by analyzing my habits and working with a variety of different healers. And as I thought about all those people who had helped me transform myself, it occurred to me that they might not be aware of just how much of an impact that they had made on me. So I took a break from writing the post, and I wrote them all a note about how profoundly they had affected my life. As Adam described with his own experiment in delayed gratitude, the afterglow of sending all of that appreciation out into the world made me feel wonderful. Not to mention hopefully warming the hearts of those folks that I sent messages to. And since I benefited so much from working with those healers, I've been curious to learn more. Recently, I've been learning how to practice Reiki, which is a form of energy healing. And it occurs to me that there's an interesting comparison here. At the end of a Reiki session, you close the practice by saying, I seal this healing with love and light. And I think that taking the time out to express your appreciation serves a similar purpose. It's this idea of beaming your gratitude back to someone to seal the practice of helping with love and light. If you're getting a lot of value out of this podcast and you like it so much that you've listened all the way to this part, I'm excited to share a big announcement with you. Early next year, I'll be launching a brand new online course. It's called Reset. And basically, it's like a cosmic tune-up for your workday. I've taken 10 years of research and personal experience into the art of productivity and distilled it down into a simple four-week program that will show you how to work in a way that's intentional, energizing, and inspired. To learn more, visit hurryslowly.co slash reset. That's hurryslowly.co slash reset. For the next episode, I'll be in conversation with Priya Parker, the author of a new book called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. We'll be talking about how to create meetings, dinner parties, conferences, and even just casual get-togethers that will truly transform people. She's really a joy to listen to, so don't miss it. And now it's time for your final moment of zen. I find it really odd when someone is asking for help and they're trying to explain why it's going to be good for me to help. And to me, you know, worth my time is not this is going to benefit me, right? Worth my time is this is a request where I can make a significant contribution uh, and, you know, it's going to be helpful in your life. I want to extend much appreciation for all of his hard work to my producer, Matt Susich, who makes me sound much smoother than I do in real life, and to Devin Craig Johnson, who composed our original theme music. If you feel like this episode changed your outlook and would like to leave us a review on iTunes as a way of expressing your appreciation, you will earn my eternal gratitude. Thanks for tuning in, and remember to hurry slowly. Hurry slowly.